Welcome to the Locust and Honey Podcast. We are two Reformed Southern Baptists who desire to speak the truth of the gospel to the heart of the culture. We're also proud members of the Biblical and Reformed Network. If you would like to support our growing podcast, you can do so several ways. One, you can leave us a comment and share our podcast on your social media. Two, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And three, you can follow the link in our show notes to find all of the other ways that you can support us and connect with us. you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet of hope of salvation. Well, hello and welcome, everybody, to the Locust and Honey Podcast. I'm Andrew. And I'm Matt. And today we will be talking about the Hill Difficulty. Episode 55. Episode 55, yes. Yeah, that's a great passage, though, that you read. Thanks. I don't think it's a common one that people read, but they should. They should, yeah. Because we are children of the light. Amen. I like it. Andrew, today is Monday. It is. Our podcast goes out on Sunday. It does. Why are we recording so late? Well, we, uh, our church is putting in a church library. They are. And the church library happens to be right outside where we record. And so we sat down to record last time and realized that... They were putting in shelving. They are putting in shelving. And it was loud. Yes. But guess what? What? <laughs> They're still putting in shelving. <laughs> so here we are. Uh, we're just going to push through If today. there's any background noise, we today, apologize. If you have any background noise, um, just know that leaders are readers. <laughs> and uh, we affirm readers. That's right. So since we're affirming stuff, let's affirm and deny some things today. You okay. want me to start? Yeah, I feel go like you ahead. start every time. Yeah, go ahead. You start. I'll start. All right. I'm going to affirm... Biblical leadership. Specifically, we have been raising our boys to be future men. And I like one thing that Doug Wilson says. He says, men won't know unless boys learn. I think he says it more intelligently than that. But basically, if fathers don't teach their boys things, they won't know in the future. So one of the things that we've been trying to teach our boys is to be biblical leaders. And the the thing that we've been really hammering on as of late is that leaders don't make excuses for when they mess up. My boys have a tendency when they get in trouble for something uh, or when they mess up or whatever it is to give me a whole bunch of excuses. And what I'm trying to get them to see is that as a leader, we need to own our mistakes and learn from them, and then we can move on from there. But uh, we don't want to just make excuses and just blame everybody else for everything. I think our society could do well to learn that lesson to biblical leadership. One of the aspects of that is being able to 
be held accountable for our actions. So men, you are the leader of your home. What that means is the decisions you make, you bear the weight of those decisions and we should quit pushing it off on other people. So when we're looking at our culture, there's a huge feminist push right now. There's a huge push for all kinds of feminists. You can have a trans feminist, which is a man. But what what's happening is the the biblical men are not being leaders. They're not assuming the responsibility for the culture being the way that it is. And it the, it, it starts with us. When we're leading people well, then we see a society that is more edifying to Christ because God has given us the family as a good for us and we are squandering that by allowing culture to redefine what the family is, redefine what marriage is, redefine what a male is and what a female is. So I'm affirming biblical leadership, but with that, there's a challenge for us to assume responsibility where we've messed up, repent of that, and continue to drive forward to look more like Christ in our leadership, whether that's husbands in the family, uh, fathers, or just us as individuals seeking after Christ. Yeah, it's a good affirmation. Thanks. Good challenge. My affirmation is going to be, I guess, it's going to end up flowing really nice. I know what we were talking about. Flow it. It's going to be reading. What? Yes. Oh, leaders are readers. That's right. I've been reading through scripture. I've been reading different book, Pilgrim's Progress, like we've been going through. But I never have really been a big reader. I've been kind of someone who I, I can retain knowledge really well. Like, it, like if you ask me about statistics or like, like baseball statistics mm-hmm. or um, football statistics or history or things like that, I've always been able to really um, internalize what I hear well. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason, I've never really felt the need to become a big reader until I started actually reading and realized the fruits of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just about getting information and gathering more information. Um, <clears throat> what I've noticed is that as I've read, um, it's it's helped me to, f- like reading helps you formulate your thoughts kind of at a deeper level. So like as I've read, I've noticed that I've been able to teach better. I've noticed that yeah. I've been able to, um, explain things better to just to not even not even teaching wise, but like explain things to my wife as I'm telling a story about the day, yeah. you know, or like um, I, I've I've been able to do those things. Um, th- those I guess skills have been sharpened yeah. by reading, and that wasn't something that I really expected. Um, I, I always kind of thought of reading as like, okay, you know, you can either watch a documentary or you can read, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, but no, there's more fruits to it than that. Particularly, I mean, obviously with scripture, and 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 I think that re- really what helped me is the past year I've really been wanting to obviously read through the whole Bible, but then also remember passages of scripture, remember um, like memorize scripture and things like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just been, it's, it's been fruitful in ways that I was not anticipating. So that's been good. No, I like it. I affirm your affirmation and I've got a couple points with your affirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that I started doing a couple years back is having a yearly read through the Bible plan that I'm doing, but then also have four or five books that year that I want to read through. And some of them 
are really good. And so I'll start at the beginning and just read all the way through it. Uh, and then some of them I'll read a couple chapters and then mark off where I left off. And so there might be two or three books that I'm reading two or three chapters in, you know, but my goal is to get through those books on my reading plan that year. And, um, kind of like what you're saying, a couple things. Um, one, you've got the whole debate of watching the movie versus reading the book. Mm-hmm. And I would always encourage people to read the book because it takes you deeper into the characters, right? Mm. In a movie, you've got, so let's say Lord of the Rings. Um, you can go watch the movie and there's three of them and they're about three hours long, you know. But, but still... In that three hours, you're not able to get into the the nuances of the characters and who they are and what they're thinking and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, movies are different and they tell different stories. But when you read the books, you get a lot of detail that you would have missed in the movie that they just don't have time to go into. Or if you go into that through the medium of film, it doesn't translate as well, right. you know? So... Um, so you get more detail. So that's one thing with, with reading and, and us encouraging people to become readers, not just consumers of movies and documentaries and film, you mm-hmm. know, because you are going to get a lot more detail. The other thing is you, you get to hear from people outside of our century. So mm-hmm. when you're watching movies, when you're watching documentaries, things like that, a lot of them are told from our current perspective. Now there's, um, I know Canon Press just came out with a Puritan documentary Mm -hmm. where they're talking about the Puritans. So there's things like that. But if you just go and get a book from a Puritan, you're going to learn a lot more about the Puritans than you will even watching that documentary. So I think the hopes are that the documentary sparks an interest and then you go pick up a book and you read it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but if you're, Consuming social media, if you're on YouTube, if you're on, you know, all of that stuff, you can learn from some very wise men, but most of them are people that have podcasts now, people that have YouTube channels, people that are putting out content are in our current century. Whereas I can go and I can read, I've got Jonathan Edwards' uh, Freedom of the Will on my shelf right here. I've got Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex. Um, Lex Rex was written in 1644. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's just a couple that I'm looking at. I got Spurgeon, uh, Prayer and Spiritual Warfare, John Owens, The Death of Death, um, Augustine's Confessions. You know, so like these are books that were written uh, a couple thousand years ago. And... hundred. Man, couple hundred a couple hundred years ago. Years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, Augustine... Yeah. It's pretty close to a thousand it's years ago. Close, yeah. But my point is, when you're reading those, you're getting to fully understand that author a lot better than watching a documentary on them. You're hearing what they're saying. And um, yeah, so leaders are readers because when you're reading, you're, you're getting more in, in depth into what's being said. And the people back then had a lot more time to sit and write mm-hmm. and actually contemplate what they're saying you know they weren't just putting out mass products to to get an audience they were uh giving a lot of thought to what they were saying so there is a wealth of knowledge to be gleaned from reading Mm -hmm. 
So I affirm your affirmation. That's right. All right, I'm going to deny something. Okay. I'm going to de- deny hmm, I'm going to deny the church doing what God has called the family to do. Mm. And this is on several aspects, but we kind of talked about it recently. The call of the family is to raise your children to know to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not just to know it, but to love it. You know? Right. Um, that's not the call of a youth group. That's not the call of the church. That's not the call of education. Um, that's the call of the family. And what we've been asking is for the church to take on that responsibility. The problem is the church isn't called to that. The church is called to equip the saints for the work of ministry, you mm-hmm. know? So you're not going to have, um, you know, a, a, a ch- the church isn't going to enforce, I don't know, say, making sure everybody in the church is doing their quiet times every day. Right. You know, because that's not the church's responsibility or role. Mm-hmm. Um, but the church is going to faithfully, exegetically preach the word mm-hmm. each week, you know. Um, so when it comes to raising kids, it's not the church's job to have this elaborate children's ministry and this elaborate youth ministry that finds kids and draws them and fully shapes them so that when they graduate, they're these well-rounded individuals that are ready to face the darkness and be light. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the role of the family, and that's the call of the family, and the church is called to equip the family to do that, not to do it for them. Yeah. So I, I think we've been doing that wrong as a culture. And uh, so my challenge is to those of you that have kids, are you doing that? Are you just allowing the church to equip your kids for the work of ministry? Or are you equipping your kids not only to know God and know his word, but to love him? and desire to worship him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because when you look at what we're facing, kids are spending, what, 30 hours a week at school. They're spending, I think it's like 50 hours a week on some sort of screen, whether Mm -hmm. it's a phone or a TV or a video game. And, uh, and they're spending, let's say they're, they're at church anytime the doors are open. They're spending around four hours a week at church, right. you know? So four hours a week is not going to combat 30 hours a week at school around friends and around a public education, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the family needs to be uh, taking advantage of the time that they have together and being intentional with that time, not just for building connections with them, but being intentional in teaching them to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. So... um my denial is trying to get the church to do what God calls the, has called the family to do. But rather, I would affirm the church equipping parents to better do that. Mm. So that's my denial. All right. That's good. My Thanks. denial is it has some threads of relation to that, but it's not um, completely related. Um, so every year around this time, I deny this thing and I will deny it until I meet my grave. And 
it is parents, if your child is a baseball player, allowing that child to act as if baseball is their job when they're seven years old. Let's say any sport. Any sport, not just baseball. Any sport or thing. It can be it can be playing piano. It can be um, dancing. It can be acting. It can be... But what happens, and I see this a lot, the reason I use baseball as an example is because that's what's just that's huge around here is just baseball. We're, we're in baseball season. We are in baseball season, and we are in a baseball town, and, well, baseball and football, I guess. But um, you get, you know... A seven-year-old, and, and it's starting to get younger and younger, right? So when I was coming up, it was 10, 11 years old was when you started to see people who played year-round baseball and just right. devoted their whole lives to it. Now you're starting to see it at six, seven, eight years old. Yeah. Um, that's not good. <laughs> that, is a not, that is not a good idea. Um, and I can speak from a baseball perspective of the fact that your child is... At, at seven years old, your child will be just as good as a, as a child who started travel ball at 11 years old but developed their craft well. Yeah. When By the time like they're 16. 14, 15, 16. Right. Yeah. Like, it, it does not matter. It makes no difference. And so what we're doing is we're robbing a child of the time to go and learn other things, to go and do other activities, to be a child, to... And we are creating a job for them to do that requires a 40 hour a week commitment essentially yeah you know and turning them into an adult before they're ready to be an adult or before they ought to be ready to be an adult you right. know and so um it is something that i think a lot of people in our little area get sucked into as far as baseball goes but i think nationally and, and around the world people get sucked into it with all sorts of different things of you know you want what's best for your child, right? And so it's like, if my child wants to be in the major leagues and I'm going to make sure he's in the major leagues, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, first of all, we have to be realistic about that. But second of all, you know, if we are Christians, particularly if we're Christian parents, we've got to be submitting our child to the will of the Lord and letting the Lord guide where they're going to go with their life. Right. We can't. We can't say my child wants to be a, you know, professional this that or the other and i'm gonna make sure that they do that i yeah. mean you know what i mean because the lord could be guiding them somewhere else i mean that's what happened to me right you know i wanted to be a professional baseball player but the lord guided me into ministry yeah. you know um and so it's it's yeah it's something that really picks up around this time with baseball um but this definitely applies to everywhere else and in, in in a child's life um instead of making our lives about succeeding um, in this particular area, I would say you can use these things as tools, right? So like baseball can be a tool to establish a craft for a child, right? Yeah. So it's, it is a craft. I mean, it's like, it's like woodworking. It's like, you know, um, playing guitar or playing an instrument. Like it is a craft that you have to work at. And I think that you can glorify God by working at that craft. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> Right. Ultimately, our call is to raise up our children in the admonition of the Lord, you know, and to have them desire to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so, um, 
yeah, that's a denial that I'll have um, with every single year when this time comes because it's that's when it gets brought up in our area a lot. All right, so what would you say to the parent that says, but Andrew, my kid loves it? Well, you know, your kid also probably loves picking their nose and then wiping it on the wall, but yeah. you can't let them do that for the rest of their life. You know, <laughs> like sure. we can't submit to the desires of our children. We have to guide the desires of our children. Okay. You know? So, yeah, no, I like it. Um, so we do baseball, we do football. Um, my middle aged son is going to do, uh, he tried tackle football this year mm-hmm. and, uh, he didn't so much love the tackling part. <laughs> so I think he's going to do baseball and basketball this next year. Yeah. But yeah, we're, we're, we're using sports, like you said, like a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something that we're using to help us in parenting. Um, so there are some benefits to sports. Um, one of those being, and I love sports. Right. I mean, that's not, I'm not saying that I don't yeah. love it. No, we're like saying, I, you know, use it well. Right. And yeah. use it as a tool. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, that, so like talking about leadership, when we're talking to our boys about being leaders, playing sports is a good way to, to instill that leadership quality in little boys, you know, or Mm -hmm. girls, but you're, you're allowing them to be leaders on their team. Uh, You're allowing them to be good sports. You're allowing them to face adversity, you know? Um, So with football specifically, uh, my oldest son was on the AU football team this year and he was the linebacker. And so like, I can't just tell him, Hey, go tackle that guy outside of sports, you know? Mm -hmm. So he's, he's being able to figure out how to control aggression, uh, how, how to, um, be aggressive, but then also right after that, I'm going to go and shake the guy's hand and tell him good job and be a good, uh, if I win or lose to be a good sport in that, you know? So there's, there's some benefits to it. You're, you're teaching them how to work as a team. You're teaching them how to overcome obstacles, you know? And so with football, it's more of that teamwork, you know, everybody, you're, you're going to be, your defense is going to be as strong as the weakest guy on the defense, you know? Um, in baseball, you get more individual things where you're at the plate with the ball, you're either going to hit it or you're not. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you've got to learn how to deal with the pressure and then succeed even when there's pressure, you know? Right. So I like all of those things, but sports is not the primary teacher. Mm-hmm. We, we are as parents. And, and so we're not just signing them up in, in, in sports and then having them just do that full time, but we're allowing them to also be invested in church and see that that is important. We're also having them grow this desire to read you know, um, different things like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of things that we can do as parents and sports is a good tool for some of that, but it's not the only tool. And, and you don't want them just doing that. You want them to be well-rounded individuals. Mm -hmm. So I like it. Well, let's transition harshly (laughs) to the hill difficult. (laughs) Um, well, it can be sports is difficult. Sports is sometimes you have to, difficult sports are difficult yes sometimes you have to conquer hills and that's true um last week we talked about the cross and the sepulcher Mm -hmm. and we're gonna pick up there where we left off um trying to figure out the best way to flow into this 
But First Thessalonians 5, 4 through 8, I think is a really good passage kind of describing where we're at here because what we're going to be looking at is the need to stay awake and to stay alert because the road is difficult and the road is dangerous. So if you've been following us in this, we've been following Christian uh, out of the city of destruction to the wicked gate. Then um, a couple episodes prior, we did the man in the iron cage, which talks about the interpreter's house. Last week we were looking at the uh, cross in the sepulcher and Christian goes to the cross. When he gets to the cross, his weight falls off, rolls down into the sepulcher and is seen from nevermore, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're going to pick up here and we're introduced to five individuals and a hill. So three immediately appear at the foot of the cross and these three are chained and they're asleep at the foot of the cross. Um, and we also see that, uh, so I'll, I'll introduce the three now. You have simple, you have sloth, and you have presumption. And so Christian walks up to them. They're asleep, chained at the foot of the cross. And simple walks up, or sorry, Christian walks up and wakes him up. And simple tells him that he sees no danger and goes back to sleep. Sloth wakes up and says, yet a little more sleep, and he goes back to sleep. And Presumption wakes up, and he says, every vat must stand on its own base. And what Christian warns them is that there is a roaring lion roaming about, and it's not safe for them just to be sleeping there. But um, so those are the three that we're immediately introduced to, Simple, Sloth, and Presumption. So in this part, there's three main things that I think Bunyan is teaching us about true religion. Uh, the first is that true religion teaches the need to persevere, which is why Paul says that we are to examine ourselves to see if you are in the faith. Or like in Acts 16, um, Paul says, let us go back to visit all of the brothers and see how they are doing. There's this call to see of perseverance. More importantly, there's this call to, um, to make sure that there's progress in the lives of the believer. And uh, so when we look at that for ourselves, we need to be seeing, is there this perseverance that's happening? Is there this progress in our walk with Christ? You know, um, there are people who don't go to church anymore, tying this into to us today. Uh, they don't read their Bibles anymore. They don't share the gospel anymore. Um, basically, they've fallen asleep at the foot of the cross. And those people have names like simple, sloth, and presumption. Uh, so what we see here is this need to self-examine. Uh, so let's kind of talk about who simple is, who sloth is, who presumption is. Um, simple... I think with their responses, we get a good idea of who they are. So when Simple's woke from the foot of the cross, he says, I see no danger. Uh, sloth, yet a little more sleep, and then presumption. Every vat must uh, stand on its own base. 
So simple is that person that they just, they don't see that danger, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So the Bible tells us that we are in a spiritual battle. We battle not flesh, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spirits. Um, We're to put on the whole armor of God because our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may may devour. And um, that's kind of the warning that Christian gives them here too mm-hmm. is uh, there's this roaring lion. It's not safe for you to just be sleeping on, on at the foot of the cross. You know? Right. Um, so simple. He sees no danger in that. That would be the person that they say that they're a Christian, um, but they're not putting on that spiritual armor. So what would some of the spiritual armor be? Well, you've got the helmet of salvation, you've got the breastplate of righteousness, you've got the sword of the spirit. Yeah. Sword of God's word, can't remember. Sword, sword of, of the spirit. Yeah. yeah. Um, trying to remember them all. The uh, shield of faith. Shield of faith, yeah, that's right. You said the helmet, and then you've got the shoes, which is the preparation of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So, but how do we put that on? What does that look like? Um, spending time in the word, spending time in prayer, spending time in community. But I would say the biggest two things would be spending time in the word, spending time in prayer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so spending time in the word is one of the primary ways that we can put on that armor, you know? And if we understand that we are in a spiritual battle, then we are using the word to help us stand against spiritual attack, help us to um, know where we're going. That is kind of our roadmap. It's that light to light up our path. And so, um, yeah, so, but simple would be that person that just isn't doing that. They're just, I'm a Christian, I go to church, and when I'm in the world, I'm just kind of doing just like, those people do. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but also, you know, I'm here at the foot of the cross. And so I want to go to heaven as well. Right. Sloth, yet a little more sleep. He's just putting everything off because he'd rather, I mean, he's just lazy, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the same. Like, so I've had conversations with friends before who, um, would say things like, you know, I, I know, so I remember specifically a conversation I had when I was in eighth grade with some guys and we were kind of t- just talking about the Bible, you know, talking about being a Christian. And at that point in time, I was kind of playing the game, you know, mm-hmm. I would go to church, knew what to say there, but then around my friends, I was kind of just living for the world, living for myself. And, um, but having a conversation with with two of my buddies and one one of them, what he said was, I know that basically I know the Bible is real. I know that what it says is true. And when I get married and have kids, then I want to get involved in church to raise them in church. Um, but right now I'm just having fun living life. And after mm-hmm. we're going to go to high school and then after high school, I want to go to college and I don't want to be tethered by the Bible during right. all of that. Uh, basically that whole idea of 
just sowing your wild oats. And mm. when I get married, then I can come to faith in Christ. That's kind of what sloth is saying, you know, just yet a little bit more sleep. Just let me continue where I'm at. And then later I can do the work that I need to do to be on this journey with Christian. Right. Um, and then you got presumption and presumption, uh, gives this little pithy statement. Every vat must stand on its own base. I don't think specifically what he's saying is of importance. I think it's more of those people that have these like spiritual slogans, you know? So like the people that wear the Bible verses on their face or put the crosses on their face when they play sports Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, you know, um, they've got their little, you know, they win the Grammy and then say, I want to thank Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but the life that they're living doesn't match these little slogans that they've memorized. Right. You know? Um, so that's these three people. And I, I, I think Bunyan does a good job of, as you're reading this story, um, he, he really jars you with things. And so the man in the iron cage is one of those times that he just, he really grabs your attention. It's this jarring juxtaposition of what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And this is another one of those times because you're at the cross. His um, burden has just been taken away. It's rolled into the sepulcher. Um, but then he sees these three guys that are just sleeping at the foot of the cross. That's not what you would expect to see. Um, and they're chained, you know, uh, something interesting, uh, and, and worth note is that these three characters reappear in the second book. So the second book is Christiana, his wife and the kids, but they appear in the second book. But when she comes and sees them, they're not sleeping anymore. They're dead. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I think Bunyan is telling us that these people um, who were chained sleeping at the cross, that they ended up getting um, the roaring lion devoured them mm-hmm. because they weren't prepared. They were either simple or slothful or presumptuous. And that ultimately they never left the cross. They never continued to follow Christ. There's no progression. There's no perseverance in their journey to follow Christ. And so I think with these guys, what he's just really driving home is that first point that true religion teaches the need to persevere. Um, what are your thoughts on this so far? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a very, I think the thing that got me when I was reading by it is the fact that they were chained, you know? Yeah. So, um, we read a lot about how, and I was talking to the college about this Sunday. We read a lot about how um, in scripture, how we've been set free from the law. We've been set free from, you know, sin and death and all of this stuff. Um, when we read that, sometimes I think a lot of Christians will sit and they'll say, okay, I've been set free. So now I can do whatever I want and know that I'm not going to go to hell. Right. Right. Um, it's kind of like what, I guess la- uh, lazy or slothful was to kind yeah. of saying. Um, but no, if we've truly been set free, we've been set free from the chains that they're chained. They've So if they would be set free, they would be not chained anymore. 
able to follow. They'd Christ. be able to follow Christ, yeah. but they're not. They're chained. They're yeah. not set free. Right. They are bound. Right. Um, and that's what really stuck out to me when I read by it. It was like you know, man, like they not only are they simple and slothful and presumptuous, but they're chained to these things. Right. You know, and, and so, um, and the, the only one who can unchain them yes. is Christ. And the know? reason that they're chained at the foot of the cross, though, mm-hmm. is so the the two that we meet after this, we see them, we're introduced to them jumping over the wall. Right. You know, and so these three, um, they didn't come through the wicket gate. They jumped over the wall as well, which is why they're still chained. Mm-hmm. The reason that Christian's burden fell off of his back it's because he entered through the wicked gate. Right. You know, he came through Christ and Christ is able to allow that burden to be taken away mm-hmm. through the blood of Christ. But apart from Christ, even going to the cross without going through Christ, right? you're just looking at this thing that happened, but it has no change in your life. Mm-hmm. So that's why when we talk, you know, when I said that there are people who don't go to church anymore, they don't read their Bibles anymore. They, they might have done these things initially, but there's been no perseverance in that. They've fallen away. Or these people that have deconstructed their faith, mm-hmm. you know, there's been this profession of faith. There's been this desire. There's been this initial surge of what that looks like. But then ultimately they're sleeping at the foot of the cross, chained to their sins still. You right. know? And the reason for that is because Christ hasn't delivered them from their sin because they've not gone through faith in Christ. They've gone, they've jumped over the fence. They're trying to um, get to heaven another way. But the only way to heaven is through Christ, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, so there's warning there, you know? If, if you're that person that has uh, lost that desire to be in God's word, you've lost that desire to be around God's people, you might say something like, I just had this conversation recently too, where this person, they're a Christian, but they hate organized religion, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, that's simple and slothful and, um, what's his name? Presumption, you know? Uh, You can't hate the bride of Christ and still love him. Mm -hmm. Uh, If somebody wants to be my friend, but they hate my wife, we're going to have a hard time being friends because she's a part of me. She's an Mm -hmm. extension of me. And that just wouldn't work out. So we we can't say that we love Christ, but we hate his bride, Mm -hmm. which is the church. Even though his bride is, is marred and made up of sinful people, we should still desire to be around like-minded believers because we're all on this journey together. And the one thing we have in common is Christ. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of what we see here with that. Any other thoughts before we move on? No. Nope. All right. So, um, so Christian deals with these guys at the foot of the cross. Then he leaves, and as he leaves, he spots two people climbing over the wall. So when he catches up with them, um, he meets them, and the first guy's name is Formalist, and the second guy's name is Hypocrisy. And I think what Bunyan's showing us here is that with Christian's interaction with Formalist and Hypocrisy, um, these two are different. They're different than the other people 
that Christian has, has dealt with, these two have great interest in Christianity. Uh, there's, there's a great interest. There's a great desire. But what we see here, uh, I think the, the second overall point that Bunyan's teaching us with these guys is that true religion teaches the need for the heart to be engaged. Um, so it's not just this head knowledge. And, and I think as we dive into them with formalist and with hypocrisy, while they have this great interest in Christianity, it's this head interest. It's not this heart interest. Uh, there's a, a desire to know. There's a, a desire for that knowledge. Um, but there's not this heart desire where it's, it's the heart is kind of where my heart is. That's, that's, that controls not just emotion, but it controls action. You know what I mean? Right. So these people have this head knowledge, but they don't have this heart knowledge. Um, I'm going to pull up. Give me two seconds. I'm going to pull up a, a passage. I'm going to pull up 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. And it says, let's see. Um, 2, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 5 says this. It says that they have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Uh, I think that's what Bunyan's pulling from as he introduces us to formalist and hypocrisy. They have this um, appearance of godliness, but de deny the power of, of godliness for salvation. Um, there's this form of godliness, but the power is denied. And uh, so that's, that's formalist. Um, formalist is all right so what this reminds me of uh having been a christian since i was 23 so i don't know how long that is but the last 10 years uh i've been more in the reformed camp and uh i've met a lot of so the young restless reform movement mm -hmm. kind of spurred about 10 years ago was kind of the highlight of that and then over the last couple of years you've seen either those people some of those people become more woke or some of those people deconstruct or whatever it is you know not all of them but I when when I'm talking about formalists though I, there's been people like that that I've met and um what what I'm thinking of here is those people that they have this head knowledge and even um, listening to people like Sproul, listening to people like um, John Piper, stuff like that, where even in MacArthur, um, mm -hmm. there was this interest in what they're saying, uh, but then there's also this interest in the fact that I can go, it, it's almost like, so... I grew up listening to like Nirvana and like that whole all early alternative music, mm -hmm. right? In the nineties. And I feel like, um, so I'm at the very end, I'm at the very beginning of, of millennials. I think millennials start in like 80, born in the 1980. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I'm just a couple years in the millennial group, 
but there's a lot of people that there's just kind of this rebellion built in to them. Yeah. And I think a lot of people attach to that because it, it, it's almost, if you look at the deconstruction, deconstruction movement now, there's this desire to pick out everything that's wrong with the church and then deconstruct it back down to getting out of religion. You right. Know? But I feel like that's what the Young Restless Reform movement was doing. They just were doing that differently, right? Mm-hmm. So here's what's wrong with the church. Here's what's wrong with the church. If we go back to the the forefathers of the church, here's how we can get that right. Mm-hmm. Deconstruction's taken that a step further and said, let's just completely deconstruct all the way out of church. Right. You know? But I, I think that Young Restless Reform drew some of these formalists where – they had this head knowledge and they enjoyed arguing. They enjoyed that whole cage stage of Calvinism where they're just going out and bashing people over the head with, right. with tulip and they're looking for a fight they're looking for an argument, but there's, there's no heart knowledge. There's no goodness of the gospel. There's no, um, assurance that comes with Christ choosing me and saving me. There's no, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so that's kind of who I think of when I'm thinking of formalist is this person that they have the the desire to learn more, but that learning is never ceasing, and that learning is not producing a change of heart. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're just acquiring knowledge, but they're not acting on that knowledge. So there's no biblical wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say that that idea that knowledge is power. I would I would tweak that and I would say wisdom is power. Right. You know, because if I have all the knowledge but I don't act on it, then I'm not wise. Right. You know? And and so that's that's kind of who formalist is. It's this person that has knowledge, but they're not acting on it. They're just they're they're unwise. Mm-hmm. And then you've got hypocrisy. And um hypocrisy would be who Jesus came at uh when he went to the Pharisees. And, and he said, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy, that would be the Pharisee. Right. Um, Charles Spurge, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this when talking about hypocrisy in, in this book, he said, hypocrisy is the bigger rogue of the two for he had not any belief in the matter at all. It is a beautiful and respectable story. So this is kind of what hypocrisy would say. Spurgeon's kind of quoting what what hypocrisy would say. It is a beautiful and respectable story. And if I pretend to believe, people will think the better of me. So that's that's kind of how Spurgeon captures hypocrisy. His understanding is that the gospel, the story of Christ is this beautiful and respectable story. And if he pretends to believe, then people will think the better of him. Um, but Spurgeon's also saying that hypocrisy is the bigger rogue of the two because at least with formalists, there's some kind of desire there. You know, it's just a misplaced head knowledge. But hypocrisy is just trying to to fit in and wanting people to respect them and think more of them. So they're kind of wearing the outer garments. That's the whitewashed tomb, mm-hmm. you know. So when you think of the, the Pharisees, uh, that's kind of what I think of. But Christian asked both of them uh, a great question. And what Christian says to both of them is, will your practice stand a trial of law? Yeah. And what he's talking about there is the day of judgment. Will your, will your trial 
or will your, your practice, uh, whether you're a formalist or whether you're a hypocrisy, will your trial stand, will your practice stand a trial of law? Mm-hmm. And uh, on the day of judgment, all of us are going to stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we're all going to be tried according to our actions. Um, the differences with Christian, when he came to the cross, his sins were forgiven. He was given new clothes and his chains are gone, you know? And, and for Christian, um, he's going to stand this trial of law because he has Christ as his um, person sitting next to the Father interceding on his behalf. And when God looks at Christian, he sees the blood of Christ. He sees that he's been given this new clothes. He sees that his sins have been forgiven. They've been paid for. They've been taken to the cross. And he sees that his chains are gone, that the the weight that was on his back has been swallowed up by the sepulcher, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas with hypocrisy and with formalists, and, and really for that matter, the other three that we saw— as well, who are chained at the the foot of the cross, they will be fully held accountable for their actions because they've jumped over the wall. They haven't come through Christ. Right. When we come through the blood of the cross, our sins are forgiven. And like we talked about too, that great exchange happens where Christ takes our sin. He takes our guilt. He takes all of that and he gives us his innocence, his holiness, his righteousness. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the big difference here as we're looking at these two, um, these five people, they all jumped over the wall. They're all tied to their sin. They're chained to their sins. Like you said, Mm -hmm. um, their sins haven't been forgiven. They haven't been given new clothes and their chains are not gone because they didn't come through Christ. So Christian is different in that aspect. Yeah. Um, a couple of quotes that I think are really telling um so christian is asking why did you not enter at the beginning of the uh, enter at the wicked gate he's asking formality or from formality and hypocrisy and they said um our countrymen have all agreed that this entrance or the wicked gate as you call it is unnecessary and is just too far away we prefer to take this shortcut here by climbing over the wall it is easier and requires less effort um Going back to what you were talking about with both hypocrisy and formality in terms of, um, you know, when we're talking about knowledge or talking about head knowledge and things like that, you know, it's easier to say things than it is to actually live by what you're saying, right? right. So it's easier, like this, the whole the whole adage of it's easier to talk to talk than it is to walk to walk, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really telling thing of like when they're, when... I guess John Bunyan is writing this in here and he's saying the reason why they are like that, the reason why they hopped over the gate is simply because it's not because they didn't see the gate. You know, it's not because right. they don't know the fact that, that it's they've there. that it's there. Yeah. But that it's just too far away. It's that, you know, that, that we got a wall right here, we're just gonna jump over. It's right. a shortcut. Well, you and, know. And I think the other thing that that directly deals with our culture that we're living in too is when they say our countrymen have mm-hmm. said this is all right. the easier way to go. Yeah. And, and that's what a lot of people are doing. Well, the culture is saying, right. now I don't have to repent of my, uh, I don't have to repent of my sin. I, I need to just, say the sinner's I, prayer. Yeah. I can be spiritual. Yeah. You know? Well, um, yeah. 
So whatever that looks like, mm. I can I can sage my house and cleanse my aura and wear crystals <laughs> or just, you know, walk the aisle, say the prayer. If you've got this date that you were baptized, then you're good. Right. You know? But that's all jumping over the wall. Right. That's not going through the gate. Right. You know? And, yeah, so I yeah. think that's a, a good one. Well, and then, um, and then Christian's answer to what you were, well, so what you were talking about before when you were saying that Christian asked them, he says, will your practice stand up before a trial of law? And they say, of course, we don't doubt it for a moment. Uh, he's, they say, an impartial judge would never consider a practice that's been customary for over a thousand years illegal. And besides, what difference does it make on how we get on the way as long as we, are, as we get on it? If we are in, we are in. As we see it, you arrived on the way by coming at the wicked gate. Uh, we came in by climbing over the wall. What makes your way any better than ours? And this is Christian's answer. Yeah. He says, I'll tell you exactly what. Um, I walk by the rule of my master but you walk by the rude workings of your own desires. I have no doubt that the Lord will securely declare your deceitful, you deceitful thieves when you arrive at the end of the way. You came in by yourselves without his direction, and you will go out by yourselves without his mercy. Yeah, he's preaching. I mean, that's... Yeah. I mean, Christian is preaching to our culture today. Right. You know, this has been going... There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. John Bunyan is preaching to the um the the English church mm -hmm. you know cuz in his when he's writing this he's in prison mm -hmm. because the anglicans ended up arresting him um because they weren't surrendering to the king being the total authority over the church yeah and um so that's who he's preaching to, but that directly preaches to our culture today too, mm -hmm. you know? Well, we've been doing this for 50 years now. Right. Abortion's been legal. Why would God see that as illegal? Right. You know, or whatever it is. But that is, we can use exactly what Christian's response is to preach to our culture today. Yeah. And he's doing it unapologetically. Right. He's not backing down. No. And he's learned this because he's been following Christ already. He's not super far on this journey, mm -hmm. but he's already learned, one, I'm going the way that my king has told me to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he's also said, this is the only way to get in. You can't jump over the wall. So if you're going to say, uh, well, we've been doing this for a thousand years, why would he see it illegal? Because he said it's illegal. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, but they, they've not been reading the word. They've got that head knowledge. It's not transferred to a heart knowledge, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think that's really good. All right. So he interacts with them. And then we come to the third thing that I think Bunyan's teaching us, which is true religion shows true Christians can be influenced by unbelief. Um, so Christian deals with these guys. He talks to them. Uh, and then... As he's talking with them, he sees a hill with a spring in front of it. And then there are two roads that go on either side of the hill. The one road is called danger and the other road is called destruction. So they go and they drink at the spring and they're talking. And Christian is telling them that the way is up the hill and um, hypocrisy and formalists both take the two roads. Um, 
one goes down the road danger and one goes down the road destruction and they are never heard from again. <laughs> never seen again. <laughs> that's whenever whenever he says that in this book, I'm like, man. Yes. Yeah, right. That's it. That's a wrap. <laughs> yep. So um yeah, so they go the easier road, the 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 road less traveled. Um well, the road probably more traveled actually. Yeah. But they're they're taking the easier routes around the hill difficult. And I think the reason for that is because they are still chained and they're still carrying their burdens. Right. They're not hooked to Christ whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Christ gives Christian the strength to get up the hill difficult. But. Well, and, you know, when you think about their reasoning for not coming into the wicked gate, it was because it was too hard. Right. So you've got this hill. You need to climb this hill or you can walk on the flat ground around the hill. I mean, they've shown so far that they're wanting to take the path of least resistance. Yes. So that's what they continue to do. Yes. You know? And and I, I think that directly speaks, though, to what all of this is teaching us is that the Christian walk is not easy. Mm-hmm. It's hard. But God calls us to put the work in and he equips us to be able to do that. Right. You know? It's a grind. That's like last week we were talking about plotting. That's what it is. It's just this constant plod. You're slowly and steadily just putting one foot in front of the other. And as you continue to go, you get farther and farther. It's like when I was in the military um, and we would go on these long road marches, whether it's 15 miles, 30 miles, and you've got anywhere from 35 pounds on your back to, you know, in combat a hundred pounds on your back, mm-hmm. you know, but you've got to go 15 miles, you know, right. Each step is painful and each step you're saying, man, this is horrible, <laughs> you know, yeah. but like, if you think about it and if you think that, okay, I've been four miles in and I'm smoked, there's no way I can do another 11 miles. If you think about it that way, you're just going to quit. Mm-hmm. So you don't think about that. You just think about the next step. I've got to take another step. And then you take that step. Now I've got to take another step. It's just one step at a time. And then you drone out and you get into this, like, <clears throat> you get into this mindset of you can feel every step. Your feet are hurting. You know, you, your blisters are forming, your, you know, all that stuff. But you're just continuing to take a step and take a step and take a step. And then before you know it, I've only got two miles left. Mm-hmm. You know, now the, the end is close. I can see it. But it wasn't easy. And then you get to the finish line. And when you finish, you're completely smoked yeah. and you're done, but you've finished it. And mm-hmm. the way you did it was you just plotted and took one step at a time. That's the Christian walk. Christ gives us the energy to make that next step. And then we've got to do it again, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but he's, that's what the Christian walk is though. It's this, this plod, just step by step following him. And the more we do it, then we can look back and see how far we've come, yeah. you know? So, um, but his interaction with these two guys who took these two roads, danger and destruction, uh, it can influence, um, it shows that true, true Christians can be influenced by unbelief. And uh, we see that with Christian as he starts up this hill called Difficulty, it's very steep, and he's walking up this hill. At the cross, he was given the scroll with the seal, right? Um, 
and and we've talked about that last week, but that scroll represents assurance of faith. And he's walking up this hill, and then he comes to this arbor, this kind of bench that the master of the hill put there. And um, and he rests and falls asleep, and he wakes up. So have you ever woke up, whether it's your alarm or something like that, and you don't know where you're at or what time it is? Yeah. Has that happened to you? Mm-hmm. I, I used to have this friend of mine in the in the military, and he would go to sleep at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and then he would wake up at like 9 o'clock. <laughs> so like he'd be asleep for like four hours, but he wouldn't know where he was. Mm-hmm. And he'd come running into our room Jeez. in like his PT outfit ready for the morning because yeah. he thought he was late. You know, he's mm-hmm. like, oh, no, it's 9 in the morning. I overslept, and he'd come running in. But he would do it all the time. So, like, it got to the point where he'd come running in in, in a uniform, and it, we're all, like, playing a video game or hanging out doing whatever. And he'd come running in, and at first we'd be like, what are you doing? And he'd have to explain it, and we'd laugh at him. But it, it happened so often that we'd just be like, hey, it's 9 o'clock at night. Go back to bed. And would yeah. be like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, he was terrified, and he didn't uh, know where he was at. But that's kind of what happens to Christian here. He wakes up, and... um he doesn't know what's going on. He's got, you know, this drowse of sleep on him and he's got to continue on his, this difficult journey. He's wore out because he's been working really hard getting up this hill. Uh, and when he, he takes off, he leaves the scroll with the seal. He leaves his assurance of salvation behind. Mm-hmm. And in that he, he starts to question everything, you know, um, why am I doing all this work? Why am I going up this hill difficult? Why didn't I follow hypocrisy? Why didn't I follow formalists? You know, they're going on this easy trail around. Is what they're saying true? Am I doing all of this in vain? And and he really struggles. Then he realizes he forgot his seal, uh, the scroll with the seal, and he's got to now backtrack all that he had just done. He's got to go back to get his scroll and then start that part of the journey all over again. Mm-hmm. And the whole time he's just questioning himself. Right. You know, but what's interesting to me with that is not only can true Christians be influenced by unbelief, but this was right after he left the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't way farther down the journey. He has just been at the cross. His burden's just been taken off of his back. He's seen it roll into the sepulcher and disappear. His, Christ has just lightened his load. He's taken his, you know, he just gave him the seal, mm-hmm. you know, and he's already questioning everything, right. you know. He's lost his assurance of salvation immediately after it was given to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the practical application for that with us is— you can have this mountaintop experience uh, where you see Christ moving and working and doing great things. But if you put yourself around unbelief, whether that's the people that you hang out with, whether that's the entertainment that you consume, whether that's the music that you listen to, Satan can rip that unbelief from you in a moment. You know, Um, sin breaks fellowship with the Lord. And if we don't repent of that and turn from that, then when we're in that state of broken fellowship, it brings um, this lack of assurance. 
And that's where Christian finds himself. Mm -hmm. He's in this hard place. He's in this trial, right, that God's put him in. And that sin makes the trial way harder than it needs to be. So I recently um, was talking, and I I think what, what we need to understand with this, and I think a good thing to bring out in this, is that trials in and of themselves are not bad. God uses trials to shape us. He uses mm-hmm. trial, trials to strengthen us. The reason in the military we would do these road marches wasn't just to make it horrible, but it was to to build our endurance, to give us strength, to not only physical strength, but mental strength. Right. You know, because war, one of the things that you need, you're, everybody's going to physically be depleted. Mm-hmm. You need to have mental strength to continue to fight on, even though you're depleted, you know? And so they're building that through that. But um, God uses trials in our life to shape us and to mold us into his image. And so the trials aren't sinful. The trials are a chance for us to look more like Christ. Now, what makes the trials bad is sin. When we bring sin into the trials, then the trials get exponentially more difficult. Right. And that's what Christian's done here. He's left his assurance. He's been around... Um, hypocrisy and formalist, and and that has influenced his unbelief. You know, um, so what he's got to do is he's got to backtrack to where he was, and then he's got to get his assurance, and then continue. And really, that is that's the process of us acknowledging sin in our life, us confessing that sin to the Lord, us being forgiven of that sin because He's faithful and just to forgive us. And then us asking forgiveness of those that we've sinned against. Mm -hmm. That restores fellowship, you know, which restores fellowship with God brings peace. It brings assurance of salvation. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that's what we're seeing here. So I think the takeaway in that for us is even if you're on this mountaintop experience, you know, God's done this mighty work in my life. I'm going to follow him all the days of my life. There's going to come a moment where we're going to go through trials and yep. there's going to be temptation to sin. And because we're sinners, we're going to mess up. We're going to sin, but we've got to learn how to confess that quickly and to continue on in fellowship with the Lord yep. because fellowship does bring assurance of salvation. You know, mm-hmm. I can know that I'm a Christian because the Lord is walking through my trials with me. Right. You know? Um, so that's, that's uh, the third thing I think here to bring out. What are your thoughts on any of it? Yeah, I think that, you know, you seem to have, so you've got this mountaintop experience, right? You've got Christian at the cross, or for us, it might be a event, it might be a moment, it might be a conference, it might be something like that, or just a Sunday morning service. Um, And like you were saying, we get back down into the valley and we have to plod and we have to put one step in front of the other. We just have to keep marching forward. Um, seems like to me that a lot of Christians today have, have, you know, a choice. And, and, and what, what happens is, particularly with younger ones, younger Christians, mm-hmm. um, instead of continuing to plod, we go try and search after the next mountain. Right. right. So, um, I remember in college, um, 
passion, the passion conference is just huge thing for college yeah. uh, age people. I think, you know, if you're listening to this, you probably know what that is, but if not, it's this big conference in Atlanta that, you know, you've got like the who's who of preachers there. You've got the who's who of worship there. And it's just this big, huge thing of 50,000, you know, college students who come together. And, um, I remember there was one year where they had a really big one. It was like the first year they went to the Mercedes Benz or something, or it was, it was a big, it was a, a lot of people went for my college group. And I remember they would come back and one of the things that one of them said was, you know, now I've signed, they, they come back, they've already signed up for the next year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, now I can, you know, start my year with worship. Cause it's at like new year's is when they do it. Now I can start my year with Jesus and end my year with Jesus. Right. Of course, the first question was, well, what about the rest of the year? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so, um, I, but I think that that comment, it, 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 I, we have a choice to make, right? When we come down from the mountaintop, we can either follow what scripture commands us to do, which is to keep marching forward, to keep plotting, to keep um, persevering, um, to keep running the race, to uh, abide in Christ and have Christ abide in us, and then we will bear much fruit, to right. be that tree that's planted by streams of water, right? Um that bears fruit in its season or we can go look for the next mountain. Yeah. And, and unfortunately I think a lot of people just go and look for the next mountain, you know? And so this, I think is something that's really big. I think it's, it's one of the reasons why you see a decline in people who understand or even give thought to things like the ordinary means of grace. Um, and instead we glorify and we lift up, you know, big, massive gatherings. And as churches, that's what we long for is to have a big, massive gathering instead of every single week, just plodding through with our congregation, plodding through with our brothers and sisters in Christ, preaching the word of God, um, you know, worshiping God as he desires to be worshiped and having that be what, you know, the gathering of the saints be ultimately where we get, uh, well, not ultimately, but where we find those, mountaintops. I mean, every week, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Through the ordinary means of grace. Well, and so. ultimately you can't live on top of Everest. Right. You know, you can't, yeah. it's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you live and thrive and survive in the valleys. Right. That's where everything grows. That's where the towns are. Right. <laughs> well, and the towns are there because that's where the food grows. That's where the animals live. That's where the water is. Right. That's where life is able to be sustained mm-hmm. in the valleys. So that's where you grow. That's where you're nourished. That's where you're strengthened. And then you can go on the mountaintop and have that experience, but that's that's not where you're meant to live. Right. Um, those are blessings of the Lord. Mm-hmm. If if you spend your whole life never going to Everest, you can still live a fruitful and productive and joyful life. Right. You know? Um, so I, I think that's where we need to be comfortable is in the valleys Mm -hmm. because that's where Christ grows us. And um, so I'm going to end where we began in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not in night or in darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, 
but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So that is the call. We are children of the light. We need to be awake in the day, pursuing after Christ. You know, um, when we sleep, we sleep at night. We don't sleep in the day. Right. And in the day, we're following after Christ. So there's a need to stay awake. There's a need to stay alert because the road is difficult and it is dangerous. There should be this progression that's happening in our lives. If we're just sleeping at the foot of the cross, that won't save us. We're going to die just like those three did, you know? And if we're jumping in over the wall because it's easier, that's not going to save us either. Mm -hmm. You know, we're ultimately going to travel down the same roads of destruction and um, danger, and we're going to be destroyed. We need to put in the work and follow Christ, even though it's difficult, because that's what he's called us to. So I hope that this is helpful. I hope that you have a good Monday. Do you have any last thoughts? Yeah, no. I mean, I hope it was helpful too. Yeah. So (laughs) join us back next week as we continue to dive into this. Um, I think we're going to have a question cast coming up pretty soon. We've had a couple questions thrown at us. So if you have one, send it in. Um, You can find the link in our show notes to get in touch with us. And we love you guys. We hope that you're having a good day. And we will see you next Sunday. Mm. I hope that you progress in your walk with Christ this week. Me too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.